with all the sports hype and everything going on, I, I expect that everyone here knows what day it is. It's the day that Pastor John's team is going to beat Pastor Weiler's team out in football. That's what it is. No, it, it is Super Bowl Sunday. And uh, we'll see that there are going to be a lot of rewards handed out to individuals during that. Um, what is it about rewards that motivates us? What is that? Humans always put forth extra effort when they know that there's a reward hanging in the balance. Most of the time, it doesn't even matter what the reward is. The Patriots and the Seahawks uh, might get a trophy. They might get bragging rights. One of them is going to probably get a lot of endorsement deals for a lot of money. So, is that what they're playing for? Or is it a combination of these? Rewards based on performance are not unique to the sports world either. They're not. You find rewards in research and medicine. There are financial rewards there. Business. There's rewards when you do well on Wall Street. There are rewards virtually in every field that we exist in. People who do well look forward to being rewarded. The church, however, it's sought that rewards based on Christian performance is anathema. Can't talk about it. Though rewards are an unmistakable theme and, and very prominent in Scripture, many pastors avoid the topic like the plague. The last thing that any of us wants to do is give anyone an impression that salvation is something that you can earn. For absolute clarity, then, the forgiveness of sins is a completely free gift of God. Salvation is not for sale. It cannot be earned. It's always been that way. In Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through uh, 3, it tells us, What shall we say about Father Abraham? Our forefather, according to the flesh, has found. For if Abraham were justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Genesis 15.6, which is cited here by the Apostle Paul, proves that Abraham was justified. He was made righteousness through faith, or righteous through faith. Then Hebrews 11 also gives us a very long list of Old Testament figures from Jacob to Moses to Noah to Sarah to Rahab who were justified all by faith. In fact, in that same chapter, it says that without faith, it is impossible to please God. God is not impressed solely by your good works. He's impressed by the obedience of his son, who perfectly obeyed and then willingly died for our sins. No one else has ever obeyed God perfectly. Without having been first cleansed by the blood of Christ, it really doesn't matter how many good works you do. The fact remains, void of Christ, we are each habitual sinners who are headed for condemnation. You can give away millions of dollars, as we see people do. You could hold a press conference 
like Warren Buffett did, giving away, I think, $35 billion or something like that. But if the individual has not done that charitable gift to bring glory to Jesus Christ, the Holy Son of God, the Father is not pleased. Scores of philanthropists think they're going to do an end around on God's Son. They think they will sidestep the cross. It's because they're ashamed of the cross. They refuse to recognize their sinfulness, and they refuse to acknowledge their need of a Savior. Instead, this category of person might prefer to hold a television press conference to declare how wonderful they are, and then ask people to, by effect, honor them rather than Jesus. Their good works will never save them. So now that we have established the fact that you cannot be saved by good works, we are saved for good works. Once you've been clothed in the righteousness of Christ, God's desire is for you to perform good works that will bring honor to his son Jesus. No passage of scripture better articulates this than Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. The Bible says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Today I'm going to tell you something that will quite possibly change your life. The truth is, assuming you are a Christian today, when you get to heaven, you are going to be individually rewarded for your service to Jesus Christ. You might say, well, I know, Pastor. I'm going to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter now into my rest from Jesus. If you think that is all it is going to be, you're greatly mistaken. Jesus Christ is going to reward each Christian individually to his or her, and I'm going to say the word, performance. What does that mean? Don't we all go to the same heaven? Yes, there's only one heaven. And yes, there's only one hell. But each person's experience in heaven and each person's experience in hell are not going to be identical. God will pay out retribution to each and every person according to their deeds. He is a perfectly just judge. The unsaved will be punished according to their specific evil deeds. The Gospel of Luke says concerning the day of judgment on unbelievers... In chapter 12, verses 47 and 48. That slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accord with his will will receive many stripes or lashes. But the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of flogging will receive but a few. This judgment in context is on unbelievers. It is called the Great White Throne Judgment. John MacArthur writes concerning this verse, quote, The degree of punishment is commensurate 
with the extent to which the unfaithful behavior was willful. Note the ignorance that ignorance is no, nonetheless no excuse. That there will be varying degrees of punishment in hell is clearly taught in Matthew 10, Matthew 11, Mark 6, and Hebrews 10, unquote. But the judgment of hell, that's a different sermon for a different day. Praise God, believers in Christ will not be present at the great white throne judgment. We are going to appear at an entirely different judgment. It's called the Bema Seat, or Reward Seat of Christ. This is not a judgment of condemnation, because our sin, sin debt has been paid at the cross. This is a judgment of rewards for Christian service. The Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, referring to believers now, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one will be, will be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. You and I will be recompensed for every deed we have done, whether good or bad. That's what it says. Your good deeds are going to add up to rewards. Our bad deeds and our unfruitful pursuits that do not bring glory to the name of Christ are going to be burned up. They're going to be consumed, and consequently, you and I will suffer loss of rewards. There's quite a number of things that can result in these loss of rewards. One reason for loss would be bad motives. For instance, some of our Christian service can be attributed to legalism. We serve not because we want to, because we have to. The scenario would indicate that our heart isn't right in that particular act of service. In addition, sometimes we serve for the purpose of being seen or recognized. This will not be rewarded because the purpose in our heart was not directing praise towards Christ, we're directing it towards ourselves. Instead of Christ, and Jesus says of this concerned, uh, concerning this in Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be honored by men. See their motive? Truly I say to you, Jesus says, they have their reward in full. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving will be in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Also, Jesus says, you don't help someone for the purpose of receiving payback. Christian service isn't swapping. In Matthew 5, verse 46, it says, For if you love those who hate you, or excuse me, if you love those who love you, Jesus asks, what reward do you have? He implies none. Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Jesus says that Christians don't give for the purpose of receiving. That type of giving will not be rewarded. 
I believe it's easy enough to understand that our loss of rewards will be affected by our heart motive. What is done badly. Proverbs 16, verse 2 says, All the ways of man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. Some Christians live their whole life with the motive to be seen. It's entirely possible for a person who has been born again to enter into heaven and then find out once they arrive, they're spiritually bankrupt. It'd be irresponsible for me to go talking about rewards and what you might gain in heaven without first revealing this very real danger. So now that we're all sufficiently depressed, should we pray and go home? No. There is a very good side to this. There's a very, very positive side to all of these things. Jesus Christ is going to reward you for every single selfless deed you do for the purpose of glorifying his Son and furthering his kingdom. So let's begin at that point, furthering Christ's kingdom. You're going to be rewarded for supporting workers who've dedicated their lives to furthering Christ's kingdom. That's one of the first things. This might include missionaries. It might include evangelists. It would include local pastors and teachers and those who serve and have a ministry that is identified with Jesus Christ. Jesus told his disciples who would soon be going out to plant churches and be in the mission field, he, Jesus knew they were going to need help. So he says, For he who is not against us is for us. For whoever gives you, he's talking to the disciples, a cup of water, a cup of water to drink, because of your name as followers of Christ, Truly I say to you, he will not lose his reward. He goes to the lowest common denominator here. A cup of water. Even that, he says, when it's given to those who are followers of Christ and furthering Christ's kingdom, that person is not going to lose a reward. He also says in that same passage, he goes, because they're followers of Christ... It is very essential in what we do in furthering Christ's kingdom that Christ be named. This isn't just for pastors and missionaries. Every, every one of us, every Christian has a responsibility to bear the name of Jesus Christ. Colossians 3.17 says, Whatever you do in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. You and I aren't going to be rewarded for not bearing the name of Jesus. Each must bear the gospel and fulfill our individual role according to your giftedness to build Christ's church. We are each a builder and we will be handsomely rewarded for building. Jesus is not shy at all about talking about rewards in the scriptures. He holds that reward carrot out there over and over again, as all of Scripture does, and he says, go for it. Matthew chapter 6, 18 assures us, your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasure in heaven 
where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Jesus implores us to send our investments ahead and store up treasures in heaven where they'll be waiting for us when we get there. The Philippian believers certainly believed in investing ahead. They financially supported a missionary and preacher named the Apostle Paul. You might remember how he commended them in Philippians chapter 4, verse 15. He says, You yourselves also know, Philippians, at the first preaching of the gospel after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent me a gift more than once for my needs. Paul adds, not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek the profit which increases to your account. Paul was excited to see the Philippians building an investment portfolio in heaven. He told them their safety deposit box is waiting for them. Each and every one of us has an account with our personal name on it in heaven that is waiting for us. It's safely waiting for us, and it pays greater dividends than any Wall Street investment out there. Luke 6.22, Jesus says, Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you. This is suffering for the name of Christ again. And they scorn you, uh, scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day and leap for joy, Jesus says, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. Perhaps my favorite verse on rewards is Revelation chapter 22, verse 12. This is Jesus Christ's last promise to his church. Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. This is rewards. He says, reward. Not condemn according to what they're done. That's not what he's talking about in this particular instance. He's talking about rewarding to every man according to what he has done. Christ is bringing you a reward for what you've done and what you've built with your life. The Bible acknowledges that every Christian is constantly building. We're constantly building. That's what we are. We're relentless at it. We are either building Christ's kingdom or we are building our own kingdom. So today, we have three general categories of builder after which we can decide to model ourselves. We're going to take just a few moments if you will turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And you can keep your, your Bible there for the duration now. And as we progress, I want you to ask yourself, what type of builder are you emulating? In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, let's pick up at verse 6. Paul writes, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. 
Now, he who plants and he who waters are one. That means they have the same objective. They're working together. But each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field of workers. You are God's building. Here we find, we find that the, the redeemed people of God are likened to a building that is under construction and growing. As you and I reach people with the gospel and bring them into fellowship, we are building Christ's body. That is his church, his redeemed people who come to worship him. And there are three different types of builders in this text. Paul presents himself as the first example. He's the master builder. As Paul arrived in Corinth, he laid down an initial foundation, as he did in each city he went to. Verse 10 says, According to the grace of God which was given me, like a wise master builder, I, Paul, laid a foundation. And another is building on it. That means other ministers had joined in, other Christians had joined in. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. The one and only foundation that you can build on, the only foundation, is Jesus Christ and the gospel. Verse 11 assures us there is no other foundation. There's no other good news besides the cross. You absolutely must build upon the name of Jesus. And notice how Paul says, you must be very careful how you build. This is because your accomplishments in building are going to be tested. Are you building on that foundation? Are you building on the rock of Christ? If not, you are building on sand, and your house will fall, and mighty will be its fall. Environmentalism is not a foundation. You can't build a church on it. Solving world hunger, apart from the gospel, without naming Christ, when you take that food to someone, is not a foundation in itself. A medical cure for cancer, as good as it will be without Christ, is not a foundation. You absolutely can't save a person physically unless they are also getting saved spiritually. Physically, they eventually are going to suffer after they die if they have not been saved by the grace of God. So the, the forgiveness of sins through Christ alone must always remain the foundation that we build on. When I was in the mission field, there was a, a city that held a, uh, an outreach, a food outreach, and, and they have a dome stadium college stadium and they've got this uh, event every year it's called fill the dome and they bring in all kinds of food they bring in pallets and people volunteer and they give their time it's it's humanly speaking a very good thing and they disperse this across the city and you can go to their website you can talk to their leaders their organizers their people and never once is the name of jesus christ ever 
named through any of it. And people spend weeks of time going and organizing this, but not talking about Jesus. No one ever gets physically saved. What a waste of your Saturday. You may as well have gone into the park and handed out gospel tracts to chipmunks. Which is another activist, animal activism. I love animals. I love them. I've had lots of pets, animals, horses, dogs, cats, sheep. I love animals. We are told from Scripture to care for those animals. But it's not a foundation you build a church off of apart from Christ. You really, that, that's one in our day with when you have Hollywood and models and they won't wear fur or any of these other things and they're constantly talking about save the animals. That's a false religion apart from Christ. You can't, you can't read the Old Testament and the New Testament and in any sense come to the conclusion that God is here to save animals. He's here to save the souls of men. Old Testament sacrifices, New Testament, Peter gets a sheet. God tells him, kill and eat, Peter. You want to be a vegetarian? That's fine. That's perfectly fine. There's nothing wrong with that. That's your liberty. We're not here to save animals. They do not have an eternal soul. They have a spirit. They're animated. They have a breath of life. But they don't have an eternal soul. Verse 12 uh, next describes the diversity of materials which a builder might utilize to build on that foundation of Christ. It says in verse 12, Now if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day of judgment will show it because it will be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. This illustrates a very simple principle. God's judgment in Scripture is very often uh, viewed as a refining fire. It, it tests for authenticity. Precious materials like gold and silver can withstand the testing of fire. In fact, when they're heated, the impurities and the dross are burned off and you are left with a more pure substance. When you look here and you think of precious stones, don't think rubies. It's not rubies. Precious stones are granite, marble, onyx. These were the uh, representative of the high quality building materials of the temples of the day. You would go in and there would be marble and granite and high value materials that are adorned with gold and silver. These are things of high quality. Some commenters, uh, commentators believe that, that these precious items represent human souls. Could very well be. They symbolize redeemed lives. That's what you're building with, is bringing people into the church. They are very high value, so that after the purification of testing, they will remain. Um, what, what's in Scripture? What is, uh, what's eternal? God the Word of God, and the souls of men. That will remain after the testing. The other three are wood, hay, and straw. And they possess no lasting value. 
They represent shallow, worldly activity. At the fiery judgment, they're going to be burnt up and lost forever because it didn't lead to any redeemed souls. The activity didn't lead to that. Observe this first master builder then in verse 14. If any man's work which has been built on it remains, built on the foundation, he will receive what? A reward. When the fire of testing comes, the wise builder, uh, his labor made with gold, silver, precious granite, and stone will survive a consuming fire. The person is built using Jesus Christ as the foundation. He's gladly suffered reproach. This individual, he or she, has sacrificed financially, emotionally, uh, socially, physically to further the kingdom of Jesus Christ. This person will receive his or her reward. In verse 15, the second builder is also a born-again Christian. He, He or she is not a master builder, though. We might call this person the inept builder. Um, from Hebrews chapter 11, we know that God is the architect, correct? He is, he is the architect of redemption. Uh, this person, the inept builder, has, has not followed the architect's blueprint for building the church. They want to build their own way. Remember back, back in verse 10, Paul warns that each individual must be very careful how they build. What is ironic about this? Here's what I find ironic. Scripture does describe this individual as a builder. He or she is actively exerting themselves while building. But unfortunately, they just build with whatever they want to. They don't build with materials that will last. They build with wood, hay, straw. They're not building Christ's church with redeemed souls that come in and worship and glorify Jesus Christ. They instead just build. Uh, they're not concerned about how they build. Look at, you can look at the text. This, this, is, this is a redeemed person. This is a Christian. Um, but they build to substandard church building codes. They didn't get the right permits. They used shoddy materials. Uh, this person, in effect, has wasted a lot of their time because God never, God never told them he wanted his church built that way. When the testing of fire comes, look at verse 15. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. Work will be gone. It wasn't built right. It wasn't with lasting items. It says, but he himself will be saved, yet it's through the fire. He will pass through the fire. This person will be saved. Their work will be lost. No reward. Or minimal reward. Probably no one with a zero account balance. But there will be a lot of loss. This this is largely a a reason that pastors everywhere, including at Port St. Lucie Bible Church, are always reevaluating what we do to try to make the best effort with what we have. We want to achieve the results that God wants, which is redeeming sinners and building the church. Um, In fact, uh, virtually every theological source that I have read takes this passage and says, 
it primarily addresses church leadership and missionaries. It's primarily directed at them with a question. How are you building? Uh, it, it, it's true, pretty much every, every week that I am here, nearly every week, I'm contacted by organizations or individuals in one way or another that want to drag the church to another direction. This is what church leader, leaders run into. I made an absurd remark a few weeks ago about how someone wanted us to go around and bless pets. We don't have time for that. That is absurd, but it's true. So we're const- there's constantly a tide of other things wanting to come in on the church and erode the church. But John MacArthur also reaffirms this passage doesn't only have application to pastors and evangelists. It's not just people in occupational ministry, but to every believer who is out striving to build Christ's church through faithful ministry. Every person is a builder. Today, if you're a redeemed Christian, you are a builder. Which brings us to a third type of builder, verse 16. Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? This temp- temple in context is collectively the church. This isn't the individual temple. This is the temple of all redeemed individuals. And it says, we are a temple together. We are a living building that is under construction. It says, if any man destroys the temple of God, this isn't talking about smoking. Smoking's bad. This is talking about destroying the church of God. It says that God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy. That is what you are. This builder is busy not building. Could be called demolition man. Um, Jesus in scripture repeatedly warned of wolves in sheep clothing. And uh, they, they don't want to build the church. They have no interest in building the church. They are wolves. Their actions dismantle the church. That's, that's really in every church. Every, across America, you, you run into these three, a mix of these three, in, in pretty much every gospel-preaching church in the country, unless it's just starting with a half dozen people or something. This is just reality. That's why Paul has it here. This is what um, you can expect. So we have a master builder and a net builder and the demolition man. The text asks us, what type of builder are you? Only one is going to receive rewards. So I know what you're asking as as you ponder that. What are the rewards going to be? What are these rewards? I'm going to take just a brief moment and uh, give you a summary of an excellent book that I will refer you to. It is called Facing Your Final Job Review by Woodrow Kroll. This is an outstanding work if you want to know further what all this is going to look like and how you should build. got a lot of my material from reading him and John MacArthur and many other commentaries for this. What is this going to look like? This is a difficult thing to address because it's spread throughout the Bible. As I said last week, there's no proof text for it. What are the rewards going to look like? First, the first reward... By the way, someone could borrow this if you want to grab it. I'm done with it for a while again, but you could borrow it. Um, first, a faithful servants are going to re- receive praise 
from Jesus Christ himself. Paul states in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes who will bring both, both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's heart. Look at motives again. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. This is the well done, good and faithful servant part. You will receive praise and commendation from the Lord for uh, building his church. That, that's amazing in itself when you think about it. That Jesus Christ, the Son of God, would commend any of us for serving, for giving. That is amazing. That in itself would be, would be enough. Um, but there's more. A second item for, uh, is that for some, there's going to be an opportunity to co-reign with Christ. In Luke chapter 19, uh, there's a parable. Describes a ruler who gave each of ten servants a mina, an amount of money to invest while that ruler traveled off to a far country. That ruler is Jesus Christ. We're the servants. We're the slaves. And one mina, given to each one, represents the gospel message. What can be done with it? How it can be invested? It's the gospel message we're entrusted with. And in verse 15 it says, When that ruler returned, after receiving the kingdom, he ordered that these slaves to whom he'd given the money be called to him so that he might know what business they'd been done while he was gone. Jesus is telling this parable. The first appeared saying, Master, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to them, Well done, good slave, because you've been faithful in a very little thing. That just means in the effort that had to be put forth to do so. It doesn't mean it's a little thing in the gospel. But he says, You are going to be in authority over ten cities. The second came saying, Your mina, master, has made five more. And he also said to him, and you are going to be over five cities. This is just one example of a significant number of texts in the Bible that indicate Christ's most faithful servants are going to share with him in administrating his kingdom, in overseeing his possessions. This certainly applies at least to the millennial kingdom for that thousand years. It could be beyond that, I do not know. But some will have the opportunity to co-reign with Christ. And then there are going to be the crowns. Crowns are going to be rewarded. All of us have heard of the crowns. There's the crown of righteousness. That will be presented to those who love his appearing, 2 Timothy chapter 4 says. These are the people who can control their lusts and their passions. They've mastered the Christian life. They suppress immorality and, and uh, anger and wrath and suppress their impurities. They love Christ's appearing, the scripture says. Why? Because they look like him. When he comes, they're not ashamed. They don't turn in shame for the life they've been living. They look a lot like Christ. They're going to receive the crown of righteousness. Then there's what is called the crown of boasting. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 19, Paul writes... For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Crown of boasting? And he says it's the people that he had won to faith. Is it not even you? In the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? 
Woodrow Kroll writes, Often this is called the soul winner's crown. Because those who receive this crown are those who have carefully, thoughtfully, and specifically invested their lives in sharing the gospel with others. Proverbs 11, I think 30 says, uh, He who wins souls is wise. I know some people here who are already well on their way to this crown. Then there's the crown of victory. This is victory in day-to-day life. In 1 Corinthians 9.24, we read, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run? But only one receives the prize. Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They're disciplined people. Then they do it to receive a perishable wreath, Stephanos, crown. But we, an imperishable. Therefore, I run in a way as not without aim. I box in a way as not beating the air. But I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. These are the marathon runners who don't shipwreck their life after coming to faith. They persevere. They're disciplined. They keep their eye on the finish line. Their witness is consistent for so many others. They are going to be awarded the crown of victory. Next would be the crown of glory. This is also known as a shepherd's crown. These crowns go to pastors who protect the flock and drive off wolves. In order to qualify, these men uh, may not pastor for recognition or dishonest gain. They need to love Christ's sheep and his, and his church. And uh, Kroll acknowledges not all pastors will receive this crown. He says, to be rewarded, these pastors have to possess a pure desire to see others come to know the Lord and then grow them into the body, unquote. Then one last crown. This is called the crown of life. This is also known as the martyr's crown. It will be presented to those who've endured enormous suffering for their faith in Christ. Revelation 2.20 says that these are the ones who are faithful even unto death. This may perhaps be the most dignified of crowns. That's going to be a great day. See these crowns awarded to all you folks standing there cheering you on. Some of y'all are probably going to have them stacked on, one, on top of one another, huh? I hope so. Which crown are you going to receive? Will we all cast them at his feet like the 24 elders? Perhaps. Eventually. Will the Lord then pick it back up and himself put it on your head to last throughout all eternity? I don't know. We'll have to see. Scripture is very bold about these rewards, and uh, yet it remains somewhat mysterious about some of the intricacies of what the rewards are going to look like. I think there's probably a pretty good chance that that's so we just don't become all outright carnal about them, huh? Well, um, to be honest, my impression is like every perfect gift and every gift that comes from above, from our Father in Lights, that whatever it's going to look like, in addition to these things, it's going to be way better than most of us can imagine. We've got a great God who gives.